House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And that's the murder of E. Howard Hunt's wife, Watergate's darkest secret. And the author is uh, her son, St. John Hunt. Thank you for taking the time again. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, um, the, the, I, I was just noticing, now, um, a, a lot about your mother really hasn't um, been focused on and, and come to light. And, um, I, and going through a lot of the literature and the book, I didn't realize that she was so involved. And um, uh, what was the um, catalyst that made you write this book? Well, I think it was um, it was a few things that occurred over a, a, a span of many years, but certainly um, uh, immediately after she died, within you know the first six months of her death, Rolling Stone had um, published an article. Uh, and uh, it was an article um, uh, detailing uh, a Chicago uh, investigator named Sherman Skolnick who had uh, done um, a serious investigation into the plane crash, and he claimed it was sabotage and murder. Well, this is this is pretty hard for me and my sister to take. Uh, she'd only been in the ground a, a few months, and um, so we wrote a nasty letter to Rolling Stone um, saying, you know, how could you stoop to this... Uh, you know this uh, yellow journal journalism and uh, you know the, these uh, accusations which have no truth to them and blah blah blah. We were just still very hurt and wounded about her death and lashing out. But um, they sent um, a reporter out, uh, Julia Cameron, who eventually married Martin Scorsese. She spent two weeks living with Lisa and I at our home in Potomac, which is island, and um, and. Uh, you know, so so we got uh, a chance to talk about what was going on, and that article was published in a, a January issue uh, of Rolling Stone with Paul and Linda McCartney on the cover, and the article was called uh, Life Without Father because he was in prison at the time. It should have been called Life Without Mother but uh, or Life Without Either of Them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and so that kind of stuck in my head, that, that whole idea that she could have been murdered, um, which I didn't believe in at all. Until my father, in the late 2000s, um, during the confession sessions that we had in Miami, disclosed that he had always known or felt that uh, she had been murdered, that it was homicide and not the result of pilot error and just a random uh, airplane crash. And um, he didn't detail anything uh, to me about it, but there was another clue um, uh, when Charles Colson, uh, when I, I got, uh, I started Googling it, and I, I saw this quote of Charles Colson uh, saying to Time Magazine that uh, that uh, Dorothy Hunt had in fact been murdered by the CIA and FBI, and so I <clears throat> started trying to get a hold of Mr. Colson. Um, this was 2007; and my dad had just passed away, and uh, I was able to look to 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 get a hold of him through his prison uh, uh, ministries. And um, and he uh, he substantiated that uh, that statement he made that uh, that Dorothy Hunt was murdered, but he wouldn't go into details uh, for fear uh, of reprisal. He said, uh, "That's all I'm going to say. I stand by what I said, but I'm not going to go into it uh, for our protection." And uh, and that was basically the end of the conversation. You know, he said my dad was a great guy and blah blah blah, but. And so I, I thought, you know, there's a whole story. The Bond of Secrecy was was published, and I said, you know, there's one, there's another half of this whole thing, and that's that's my mother's story. And as I found out, um, she had been in in OSS, working with OSS people and and uh, CIA people, and kept her uh, her involvement in uh, covert activities um, all throughout uh, her life. Uh, working basically as a contract agent in the at, at embassies in the various host countries that we lived in, uh, Mexico, um, Montevideo, Uruguay, Japan, um, uh, Spain, and and so forth. And um, she was uh, apparently quite a, a skilled and savvy um, operative. Um, I found out things about her like. Uh, 
1944, she was uh, uh, working um, overtly for the uh, Treasury Department uh, in Bern, Switzerland, uh, under the uh, tutelage of Alan Dulles. Well, Alan Dulles was a name I was familiar with, and I thought, huh, well, that's, that makes sense. And she was working, tracking, and blocking the flow of, of Nazi assets throughout Europe. Um, and, I th and my mother had, had, we had had talks about that when she was alive on that last summer uh, uh, before her death. Uh, we spent many long hours um, uh, riding horses, and, and I, I was able to just hang out with her, you know, um, and uh, that was where a lot of this information came from. Uh, she told me that she was on the last train out of Shanghai uh, when the communists t took over, and she'd been... Um, in, stationed in Shanghai to set up the first Treasury Department office there, but of course she said it was really a, an OSS CIA uh, safe house uh, station there, and um, you know, and she told me that she was in Switzerland and she worked for Alan Dulles, and apparently the uh, operation that she was part of was called Safe Haven, uh, and that was uh, that was originally a, a Treasury Department operation, which then. Um, became under the control of, of the OSS uh, with Alan Dulles. Apparently there was too much infighting between State Department and Treasury as to how best to, uh, to track and, and uh, stop the, uh, the uh, Nazis from uh, uh, you know, taking their gold and their objects of art and stuff and then putting them in, in uh, safe areas in Switzerland. And, um, and this was a real operation. Uh, when it became under the control of OSS, it uh, uh, became uh, part of their SI branch, which was their secret intelligence branch, and their X2 division, which was counterintelligence. And so my mother, in 1944 in Switzerland, just sort of melted into the OSS from Treasury. And she was a very, just an, a, just an astonishingly beautiful woman, uh, and very sophisticated looking. She spoke three languages at that point. And uh, she was a, an asset to uh, to OSS. And um, uh, in '46, she uh, was offered a, a post in China, and uh, in Shanghai. And she uh, uh, opened and established the first Treasury office, as I already mentioned. It was the OSS CIA front, also. And uh, her duties were some of them were as a um, what they call a honeypot, which is to lure. Um, low-level or medium-level intelligence uh, operatives of foreign countries like Soviet Union and, and things like that uh, into compromising positions, which could then be used to blackmail the, the operative into becoming a double agent and reporting on what was going on in their country, Soviet Union, for example. And, um, and she was certainly um, beautiful enough to have lured any man uh, in any situation. Um, and as I said, she was on the last train out of Shanghai when it fell to the communists, and uh, she had her little uh, 25 automatic pearl-handled gun uh, with her, and uh, it's a gun I saw a few times uh, myself. <clears throat> and uh, in 1949, she was uh, transferred to Paris, and she worked uh, in the uh, office, the Organization of European Economic Cooperation, which was uh, Avril Harriman's um, Operation, and that was uh, to help the uh, the restructure uh, and the infrastructure of of the war torn countries in Europe. That's where she met my father, who was Avril Harriman's speechwriter. And uh, they married in 1949. And uh, when my father was stationed in 1950 in Mexico, she continued uh, as an embassy worker in the um, in the Mexican embassy because she spoke fluent Spanish and she was a translator and she was. Uh, in all the embassies she worked in, she was um, she had available to her documents and cables coming from uh, communist countries that were not um, uh, that, that that were not able to be accessed by CIA uh, except for that uh, if they had someone a plant in in the embassy, and that's what she did, and um, and she continued doing this throughout her life, um, and then in. The early 70s and 71, uh, she decided uh, she was going to divorce my father. And this is where I heard them arguing and fighting about my father's, uh, had promised to her that, uh, that uh, he had, was leaving CIA and he would not involve himself in any further intelligence 
jobs. <clears throat> and then when he wanted to join the Nixon White House uh, to be a part of structuring this uh, secret investigation team for Nixon, uh, my mother, uh, and he argued about it. And she said, you know, you promised Howard. And he goes, I know, but this is an opportunity that I can't pass up. And, you know, they really they really pumped my dad up. You know, you're going to be working for, you know, Nixon's inner circle and blah, blah, blah. And, and, of course, you know, he thought it was a career move. At the time, he had told her that he was not going to do anything like that. He was going to um, be a family man, you know, stay, stay around the house and, interact with his children, which he had always had a hard time doing because he was always on call for overthrowing governments and things like that. Um, and she went to Europe that summer, uh, and when she returned, she was planning to, uh, to uh, immediately uh, have him leave our home in Potomac and start divorce proceedings. But instead, the Watergate fiasco had um, blown up, and... Um, I was the only one there to help my father for the first week or so, and when she returned, um, she took over uh, her responsibility, or what she agreed to do was um, was pick up the cash, which um, my father uh, had um, uh, demanded uh, in support of not only our family, but of the defendant's families, the four Cubans and McCord and Liddy, although McCord didn't want any money, Liddy did, and our family did, and, and the Cubans needed funding for the attorneys and, you know, the bills, normal bills, mortgage and so forth. And so she um, ended up, uh, and I went with her on one or two occasions to uh, the, the phone booth in Potomac Village, which was just, you know, 10 minutes from our house, uh, and wait for a phone call. The phone would ring and, um, and she'd, uh, you know, pick it up and nod and maybe scribble something down and then she'd take me back home and she would then go to the pre-designed location, probably sometimes a Greyhound bus station or an airport facility, and under a phone booth would be taped a key which would correspond to a locker, and she would open up the locker, and there would be a bag, a satchel of uh, cash. She brought one home. Uh, my father had a, a place uh, that was uh, he used to stash all this money. It was a place he engineered up in the rafters in the basement, and, uh, I mean, I knew about it because uh, before my mother came back from Europe, I had met my father under his instructions at, a, at the Riggs National Bank in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And uh, I came one route, and my father had gone there and met me via another route. And uh, he had a safety deposit box there, and he uh, reached in and grabbed a thick manila envelope stuffed with something, and he, he uh, turned me around, lifted up my sports jacket and stuffed it down the, my back, the back of my pants and then put my jacket over the back of it and told me to uh, get back to the house in Potomac and um, keep my eye on the rearview mirror so that if I was being followed to try to, to ditch the whoever was following me. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, you know, like, well, I don't have any experience doing this kind of stuff, but, you know, and I had barely had my license for very long. I was only 17. and uh, and But I did... I did that, and um, and so she started picking up the money at these locations, and then she'd um, disperse it to to all the uh, the defendants, and she was getting really tired of her role as bag woman. Uh, she told me that she was being followed, she was being watched, and uh, we already knew that her phones were tapped, but this was a little more dangerous, she felt, because she was in these dark locations alone at night, uh, and um, she didn't know, she didn't feel that, that, that she was safe anymore. She felt things were really coming to a point where um, our, my parents' threats to Nixon, they were obviously being taken very seriously. And she, you know, said that, um, you know, there's no way we can win this. Uh, and so what she planned to do was um, take, uh, take evidence that they had had they had accumulated. My father was really smart to, to, uh, to keep uh, evidence uh, against Nixon uh, for a lot of things, for some of the Watergate things and some things that went back to uh, the late 50s and early 60s when Nixon was vice president and approved of this Operation 40 assassination uh, attempts against Castro. Nixon felt that if this were to come out that uh, he would be impeached. And uh, uh, McCord is, has, is on record uh, telling Judge Sirica during his uh, uh, 
his uh, testimony at the Watergate hearings that uh, he knew that Howard Hunt had the goods on Nixon which would impeach him. And this is apparently what my mother had uh, that she was traveling with to Chicago that night. Um, so, you know, it's the irony and the tragedy of it is that that she was uh, finished with my father, that they that she had reached her absolute limit. You know, he was uh, not a faithful husband. Um, and uh, even beyond his faithlessness, he... Um, he plunged himself right back into uh, covert work uh, for people that my mother told him and tried to get him to to understand were of a lesser moral uh, and ethical uh, background than he was. He said these people are going to use you and they're going to they're going to dump you. If anything goes wrong, these people are not the CIA. They're not going to support you. And but she stayed and helped, and that led to, uh, of course. Her death. Yeah. Now, so did uh, while you were living, now that was she practicing as an agent? Was she still part of the CIA and doing things after you were born and you were a child? Yes, I. I um, she was uh, a, a con. She was a contract agent. In other words, contract agents like Frank Sturgis and my mother weren't uh, on a CIA time clock. They didn't have a, a record of CIA, but somewhere in a file. Um, you know, hidden and deeply submerged. Uh, you know, the uh, the the handlers of these contract agents would know. You know, who their who their uh, their confidential informants are, or the, the people that they call their assets. And she was an asset. And so, as we traveled throughout the world, she always got work in the embassy of uh, the host country that we were uh, staying in. And in that capacity, uh, she had available to her uh, cables and documents. Uh, coming from communist countries uh, and, and so forth that uh, that she would be able to um, take uh, home and copy and then give them to my father if need be you know if, if she wasn't needed to do anything she functioned as a normal uh, secretary or worker inside the embassy but if she were requested uh, you know to see if she could find uh, any documents uh, go through the files and see if there's anything that she thought would be uh, that they thought would might interest the CIA in terms of a cable that might uh, talk about something um, relating to the Soviet Union and so forth. Uh, that um, she should use her discretion and uh, and and copy uh, and uh, supply them to uh, uh, to her handler, who was probably my dad. Mm. So yeah, she kept one foot in it. Huh. Now, so she died on the United Airlines flight 553. Uh, and it was on approach um, to Midway International. That's in Chicago. Um, so now you've been referring to her as being murdered, uh, and this was a plane crash, and it killed 43 people. Um, how do you associate it as a murder? What ties you to that now? Well, um, it's... Uh I'm coming at it, I'm looking at it from events that occurred immediately after the crash. Uh, and, well, beyond Charles Colson saying that she was murdered. Uh, in support of that, I looked at the events that occurred immediately after the crash. And, and here's some of the uh, events which were unprecedented at the time. First of all, there was uh, 50 FBI agents that reached the uh, crash site within 40 minutes of the crash. Um, that's something that had never occurred before. Uh, secondly, for 50 FBI agents to arrive at the crash site when the nearest FBI office is only 45 minutes away means that they would have had to have been assembled in various locations and been waiting for something to occur. Uh, regarding that crash. And <clears throat> I found out that there was a letter written by uh, John Reed um, of the National Transportation and Safety Board to uh, acting FBI Director William Ruckelshaus. Uh, in the letter, John Reed says that, um, that he had uh, uh, taken note that uh, there was many, many FBI agents uh, had taken a number of non-typical actions relating to the accident. Uh, and for the first time in his memory, 
uh, an FBI agent went to the control tower and confiscated, uh, after listening to it, a tape of the uh, conversation between the tower and the cockpit of the plane. He said, and especially because this plane had carried Dorothy Hunt as one of the passengers, he wanted to know, first of all, what jurisdiction the FBI was operating on, and secondly, what on earth was was uh, you know why why was the FBI all over this plane crash when it's not their job? It's not their job to to uh, uh, to ask questions of people. It's not their job to investigate a crash scene. It's not their job to go and uh, and confiscate uh, pertinent uh, uh, evidentiary material. <clears throat> and luckily um, for John Reed, Ringle, William Ruckelshaus wrote back to him and said. Um, well, in fact, Mr. Reed, the FBI does have investigative journal jurisdiction uh, in uh, domestic airline crashes only if there's a connection with the destruction of the aircraft or the willful damaging, destroying, or disabling of any civilian aircraft pertaining to aircraft piracy, interference with flight crew members, assault, murder, manslaughter, and attempts to commit murder or manslaughter. So when I read that, I thought this is, I mean, they... They obviously the FBI was was you know amassed somewhere, and they thought that something was going to happen on this plane, uh, and then they responded. So um, I mean, there, an FBI agent even went to the uh, airport tower, listened to the tape. This was a guy named Special Agent Hartz, and after listening to the tape, he said, "Oh, I I recognize the sound uh, uh, on the tape of uh, being that of the stall indicator of the aircraft, and the." control tower persons agree that does sound like a stall indicator and uh, S.A. Hartz uh, immediately notified the FAA headquarters in DC and FBI investigation was terminated after 20 hours <clears throat> now thirdly on the very next day less than 24 hours after that plane went down Nixon for reasons unknown other than the obvious ones that I'm the conclusions I'm arriving at appointed Eagle Krogh uh, to Undersecretary of Transportation. Eagle Krogh is one of, one of Nixon's inside uh, special counsel in the inner circle. He was my father's uh, superior in the uh, plumbers, the uh, secret White House uh, investigation team that uh, had done so many uh, illegal activities uh, for Nixon. And uh, Nixon appoints him Undersecretary of Transportation and that position gave him control of the NTSB investigation of that crash. So even a month after that, he appoints Nixon appoints Alexander Butterfield, another top Nixon insider and, and White House member, uh, in the position of administrator of the FAA. So here we have Nixon, um, you know, putting in two men in key positions to number one, either well. Number one, they would have had access to all the investigation. Number two, they had the ability to control where the investigation was going. And three, they had control over the final outcome of the investigation. Now, just those two things alone really told me that there was something really unusual about this crash, differing from all other crashes. And to me, it looks like there's a cover-up going on here. There's, there's an element that wants to control the investigation and how it comes, the final determination of the NTSB is going to read. And and that tells me that, that it was murder. And certainly years later in the 2000s when my father was was, was talking to me about it, he said that he, he felt that she was murdered to keep him quiet. And it certainly worked because a week after, less than a week after she uh, she died, um, he, uh, he pled guilty to all charges and kept his mouth shut. Well, what do you think? I mean, it's noted that she was carrying uh, $10,000 in cash in $100 bills. Um, but what, other than that money, what was the purpose of killing her? What, what did she have? Well, as I said, she had, um, she had uh, uh, evidence um, linking Nixon to uh, the Watergate um, the, the you know the whole Watergate fiasco, not just the break-in, but uh, but some of the other things which had been financed by uh, by the committee to re-elect the president, and this was in the form of canceled checks 
that uh, had been run through, laundered through a Mexican bank uh, in the name of Bernard Barker, who was one of the Watergate burglars. This was money coming from Nixon's slush fund at the Committee to Re-elect the President, which financed the Watergate burglary. It financed the uh, illegal entry into the Chilean embassy. It financed the operation uh, down in Los Angeles where my father and, and the team broke into uh, Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office and ransacked his files. It uh, financed the uh, boathouse that they had uh, in Miami, uh, stocked with $1,000-a-night hookers and two-way mirrors and, 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 uh, and, and film cameras. It financed the eavesdropping devices uh, that uh, had been purchased and used, the tape recordings, the payments for the burglars themselves and all the other people involved. Uh, the $10,000 and $100 bills that she was carrying was, uh, was meant for um, uh, a gentleman in Chicago um, who ran a, he had a very um, uh, highly respected uh, um, uh, company known as Stevens Research Labs. And his name was Stevens. And he had built, handmade some of the uh, recording devices and things like that that they used uh, in the Watergate burglary. Uh, now, people thought the $10,000, I don't know, was my father said in his book, Undercover, that uh, it was their money and they were taking it to Chicago to, for safekeeping and to invest in the Holiday Inn. Um, but in reality, the money was going to Stevens Research to pay him off. Now, this guy, Stevens, <clears throat> also after the crash, within a, a day or two, received uh, anonymous death, threat, death threats on the telephone. And he was told, and he testified this, he called the FBI and made an official report. He told the FBI that he had received these death threats on his phone and that the threats said that uh, he had better keep his mouth shut, otherwise he was going to end up like Dorothy Hunt. Mm -hmm. So that's just one more piece in the puzzle. Um, and she was on with uh, Michelle Clark. Right. Apparently they were going to hold a press conference uh, in Chicago. And my mother was just, she was finished with it. She, she did, you know, she said, we're going to end this. We're going to tell everything that we know. And she knew everything. And uh, she was going to blow the lid uh, out of, uh, off the White House. And uh, my father had, a, had sent a threat uh, just a few days before the flight, saying to, uh, in a letter to a Nixon attorney, he said, uh, quote, the Watergate bugging is only one of a number of highly illegal conspiracies engaged in by one or more of the defendants at the behest of senior White House officials. These as yet undisclosed crimes can be proved. And in James McCord's testimony to the Watergate hearings, he said, quote, Hunt had information which would impeach the president. So Nixon, you can hear on, his, on the on White House recordings, was deeply concerned about uh, my father, and he ranted and raved about uh, how we had to use any means necessary to keep my father from talking. And John Dean uh, was asked by Nixon, uh, uh, I wonder how much money it would take to, uh, to uh, continue paying Hunt off. And John Dean, uh, he said he just pulled, in his book, he said he just pulled a figure out of the top of his hat, but he said a million dollars, Hunt's probably going to cost us a million dollars. And Nixon, without hesitating, said, I can get a million dollars. I know where I can get it. I can get it, you know, soon. We have to keep Hunt quiet. He knows too much. If you open up that scab, a lot of things are going to come out, things which will make Hunt look bad, things which will make the CIA look bad, things that will make me look bad. This whole Bay of Pigs thing is going to come out. And he kept referring to this Bay of Pigs thing, which uh, uh, years later in a book by, uh, by Haldeman, uh, he claimed that uh, the Bay of Pigs thing was a, a reference to the Kennedy assassination. <clears throat> And uh, although Nixon wasn't primarily involved in the assassination, he did feel that the, that the assassins themselves were the same members of the teams that were part of the Operation 40. Nixon felt horrible about the fact that, that the possibility existed that some of the same members of a team he agreed to and green-lighted and supported as vice president would then turn around and, and, uh, and, and kill the, uh, you know, the, the president of the United States. He felt that this association alone would um, cause his, his uh, complete and, and total uh, the end of his political career. And he did not want that to come out whatsoever. And, of course, the, the canceled checks that my mother was carrying and, and so forth, 
and the fact that, uh, that Michelle Clark, uh, the first African-American uh, 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 newscaster for CBS, was on that plane, and apparently they were going to um, have a press conference. So that's why the plane had to come down, because it was at that moment that they realized, well, <laughs> this news conference is not going to happen. And people ask, well, isn't that a bit unrealistic for whoever, CIA, FBI, or both of them to kill or bring down an entire plane load of people with all these innocent people just to get one or two people? And the answer, frighteningly enough, is no, it's not unusual. It's a classic CIA method of disposal. In other words, if they just killed my mom to keep my dad quiet, the investigation would be on her death. But if they, you take a plane out or an apartment complex or whatever to kill one or two people, where's the investigation going to center on? The plane crash, not the specific murder of an individual in the plane. Because everybody knows the people that died in the plane died in the plane crash. So the investigation is going to center around uh, how the plane crashed. And with Nixon controlling or he had the ability to control the investigation and the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the final outcome, of the NTSB report, it's, you know, you've got to be pretty stupid not to think that there was some kind of involvement uh, to get to get, uh, to get get rid of uh, Dorothy and Michelle Clark. And from the inside, but from your, from the family, how did your father react and what do you think that um, he thought of, of your mother's death at the time? I think he knew right away that she was murdered. I think he was very aware that um, that this was a possibility. And as my mother said to me, there, this, this is a no-win situation. We can't win this. And I, I don't know what, you know, I just think it was really tragic. I, I, I know that he, he must have known right away because his reaction to it was to um, plead guilty to all the charges. In other words, he wasn't going to testify, he wasn't going to bring in names. He he never mentioned that Nixon uh was a, a part of the of the Watergate um uh break in and that um he uh, he never talked about it after that. He he never uh, offered information for clemency. And even though Nixon you know told him that don't worry, you know, um you know, uh, he's going to be granted clemency as soon as uh, things have cooled off a little while. And after he was reelected, my father expected that he would be granted clemency once he was once the uh, trial was over and he was sentenced. But um, it it never happened. I bet, do you think he did that as a, for for a sense of loyalty um, for the country or for just his own set of values? Did what? Took the sentence. Never, never talked about Nixon. Uh, he told me that he did that because he feared next. He feared for the safety and the lives of his children. He told me, which means me and my sisters and my brother. He said at that point, you know, all bets were off, and this was a like my mother said, a, a war situation that you, you can't win. You cannot succeed in blackmailing the president of the United States and remove him from power. Um, you're going to be killed. You're going to be silenced one way or another. And I think to kill my father would have been much too obvious. Uh, and so the best way, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't want to necessarily take the man out, but you want to take out what he loves, what he treasures the most. And that's, that's common tactic in the mafia. And then, uh, you know, any time you want to control somebody, you either kidnap their family or their kids or their wife, uh, and the threat of death is is levied, and usually you get to total cooperation from the person that you want cooperation from, and they wanted my dad's cooperation. So did Nixon ever bring up the subject uh, or talk about your mother's death or the plane crash? You know, he did. Um, it was interesting. There is a conversation recorded um, uh, between uh, Charles Colson and Richard Nixon, and uh, let's see if I, if I have it here, uh, in, in which um, Colson calls Nixon, um, I think on December 8th or early December 9th, either, the, either the, the night of the crash or the early morning following the crash. And he tells um, Nixon uh, that, um, that uh, 
that Howard Hunt's wife uh, was just killed in a plane crash. And Nixon is very reserved, and he goes, oh, uh, that's tragic. Uh, uh, are they Catholics, he asks. And Colson goes, well, yes, they were Catholics. Uh, and, uh, and Nixon said, that's, that's, that's very, very tragic. And, uh, and, and Colson goes, yes, she was, she was the pillar of strength in that family. She was, she was one of the savviest women, uh, women you, could, you could ever meet. Uh, Dorothy Hunt, uh, she had everything going on. I mean, she knew the whole thing, is what he says. And that's, Nixon didn't really comment too much on that other than to say, okay, that's tragic. And that could be just Colson calling Nixon and going, it happened, she cra the plane crashed, she died. And Nixon, all he has to say is, oh, oh, I'm sorry about that. And that gives him the information that if that's the case, this would be a perfect way to, um, to tell Nixon that, uh, that uh, they had that under control. I don't know that that's what it was. But that's certainly uh, more than feasible. Well, didn't your parents, wouldn't, wouldn't she have met, met Nixon at one time during all this? So wouldn't he have known her? Well, um, let's see. They, she and my father both met Eisenhower uh, in, in 57 uh, down in Montevideo. And I'm not sure if in that, that line, because, you know, they're all kind of in a line and, you know, meeting, uh, shaking hands with, with Eisenhower. Uh, I know my my father met Nixon back then and and had two occasions to sit with him in the late fifties, and my mother I'm I, there's a picture of her and my dad shaking hands with Eisenhower at that time, but there's no photographic evidence that um, she uh, that she met Nixon at that time. Although when Nixon was president later on, my father uh, uh, um, invited uh, us children to attend a White House function where they would be able to meet the president. And uh, uh, so at that time, uh, he and my mother went. I don't know if any of my sisters went, but I didn't go. I was uh, against the war in Vietnam, and my father was upset that I, I, I didn't go. But um, So she would have had opportunity to at least shake his hand. When your mother was alive, she was still very much part of your kids' your, your upbringing, right? Oh yeah, yeah. She was definitely hands-on. I mean, we always had uh, help. I think it was common in those days to have, uh, uh, you know, uh, nannies and and servants. We always had a cook and gardeners and nannies and and uh, ladies that were in charge of the laundry and a, a woman that was in charge of the cooking and you know all that kind of stuff. I mean, we lived, you know, pretty well in those days. And um, uh, you know, so you know, there was uh, times when you know my both my parents would be gone, and certainly when they would go out, and they did quite a lot to uh, embassy functions, parties, and social get-togethers, which was part of her her uh, her, her duties uh, as a as a as a CIA asset was to um, you know feel people out that could possibly be turned uh, as double agents. Uh, so we all we would have a nanny always, you know, that uh, that would stay with that lived in our house. The cooks lived in our homes, and the nannies lived with us, and. So you know she got she was able to go out and about, but um, she was always our mom, and she was you know definitely a hands-on mom there uh, all the time uh, you know in retrospect. Now, if that plane didn't crash, if they weren't successful at bringing it down, how do you think that would have changed things? What what would have came next? Oh God, if they had had that um, press conference, um, that would have been. Nixon's d demise. I mean, he definitely would not have survived that. No way. They had evidence linking his money to financing the operations, and at the time, nobody knew about anything else. They only knew about the the four or five guys that were arrested in the in the uh, in in the Watergate uh, complex of the Democratic National Committee, uh, and this would have um, blown everything open. It, you know the Ch the Chilean embassy uh, break in, the Ellsberg break in, the uh, my father going to Milwaukee and breaking in uh, Arthur Bremer's apartment, who was uh, the assassin of the assa the near assassin of uh, George Wallace, crippled him, paralyzed him, but didn't kill him. Uh, to break into his apartment in Milwaukee and plant uh, pro pro McGovern literature. Uh, my father had dirt on Teddy Kennedy uh, that Nixon ordered for Chappaquiddick. They 
you know, they, uh, he, he was ordered to, um, to, um, uh, make up cables, uh, special, uh, interdepartment cables, uh, showing, uh, giving, uh, blaming Kennedy directly, giving evidence in the cables, these false cables, uh, in the assassination of, of, uh, DM, the, the, uh, prime minister in Vietnam. Nixon wanted the, the, the image of Kennedy tarnished, uh, because he couldn't stand that Kennedy, uh, was so, like, revered when he felt that Kennedy was nothing more than a, a pampered, uh, New England, uh, man who never had to work hard, uh, as opposed to Nixon, who did, and uh, who was viciously unfaithful to his wife, and therefore unfaithful to everything that Nixon held, you know, as being morally correct. Um, but you know, there was, you know, a lot of other things that happened on that crash. For example, that plane was ordered to go to O'Hare Airport initially, and at the last few minutes, it was told to go to Midway, which didn't have the the uh, the modern radar and 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 runway uh, uh, um, you know technology that O'Hare did, and so um, it was also being uh, handled by both towers, and it's called a, a handoff from Mid O'Hare to Midway, but uh, uh, under oath, the approach controller. Um, uh, it said he had forgotten to give 553 approach clearance, and so 553 were led to believe they were in a holding pattern. Uh, Midway didn't tell 553 that their plane was too far to the right of the of Midway's outer markers, and in clear violation of regulations, Midway was working two planes for the same runway at the same time, because flight 553, this big United flight, uh, found itself uh, with a small two-propeller two plane, an aerial commander, uh, directly in front of it, which caused panic in the cockpit uh, for a, a potential air crash, which caused um, you know mid uh, the uh, the big United plane to stall, and at that point it had or it was already too low of an altitude and too slow, which which ended up being why it crashed, and, and it was so far to the right of the markers anyways because of these contradictions between the two towers were telling the plane two different things. Um, so it just seems like, you know, I mean, the pilot of the of United Flight was Wendell Whitehouse. He was United Airlines, just coincidentally, their most decorated pilot. This guy had been on United, uh, you know, an employee of United Airlines for a long time, and he had flown, you know, thousands and thousands of hours in a plane just like that. Never had any, any problem. And he died, you know. But as my father said, you know, in in reaction to the the Guatemalan deaths that I talked to him about, he said it's just collateral damage, you know. Yeah, yeah, need it to be done. It's horrible to do that, but it goes on in in much. I mean, look look at what Bush did in in Panama, you know, just to get Noriega out of that country because Noriega was starting to threaten, uh, you know, what he knew about the the CIA drug smuggling operations that were going on because they used uh, Panama as a as a as a midway point between uh, where the cocaine was picked up and then on to Panama to you know to do whatever they were doing there and then on to the US to to Mena Arkansas and what did they do to to get Noriega to be quiet well they invaded the whole country and caused hundreds of deaths of innocent civilian innocent men women and children do you think what happened the series of killings and uh, you know the, even the Watergate break-ins, all the things that happened, JFK. Do you think that was kind of a first, and th that there was um, leaders that were learning how to manipulate the system, so to speak, um, and it and now it goes on today, and uh, because of it. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it, I don't think it was the first because prior to uh, the Guatemalan invasion, there was one, one more. There was one, the original um, uh, CIA-controlled coup in a foreign country was in Iran. And uh, when um, the, uh, the government in Iran was going to nationalize the oil uh, companies, which were set up by the British, by the way, not American involvement, um, the British asked the... Um, the uh, CIA to step in and create a coup because the British didn't want to get directly involved and we did 
and so you know we we uh, we ousted the the uh, the leader and we put in uh, the Shah of Iran, who ran uh, just the the worst kind of secret police savak, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, detaining um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, torturing them and killing them and executing them and keeping them locked up without any due process. So that was the first one, and then it was Guatemala, and then it was Cuba. But but yeah, these were learning processes. Uh, um, the day of assassination was a, was a learning process. Um, Watergate was a learning process, and you and you realize that since then, okay, Nixon wanted to to cover up the whole Watergate thing by declaring national security. This is this involves national security, so you can't get into it. I have presidential discretion and hands off. That you know, you just have to believe and trust me. Well, that 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 wasn't allowed to go down. Nixon was not allowed to declare national security. Uh, you know, the Dem the uh, Republican the Democrats went after him anyways. They convened the Watergate hearings and all that stuff. And y y you can't do that anymore. I mean, when George Bush was um, subpoenaed to testify about the Iran Contra stuff. Uh, in an interview with CBS, uh, the interview uh, said, uh, "We understand you've been uh, subpoenaed to testify. Are you going to testify?" George Bush, you know, just in that way, he smiles. You know, like a, he looks like such a dummy. Uh, he goes, uh, "I don't testify. No, uh, no, I don't testify." Yeah. I mean, so I mean, the whole Iran Contra thing. Everybody got away with murder. George H. W. Bush got away with uh, all the things he did. His son did. You know, they, they've learned from all these things, that, as you as you so clearly put, or you know, in the question. Yeah, these were all learning steps. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's gone to a level where maybe it's so buried that we don't realize it. And it just, you know, um, I think even beyond it being buried, I think it's it's carried out in in such openness without fear of of uh, of public rep reprisal. I mean, I don't know how else either of the Bushes got away with with everything they did um, so obviously that they never got uh, impeached or they never got uh, prosecuted. You know, Oliver North, okay, he, he went down, but he was their fall guy. Right. Well, I think that uh, it's, um, it's really corporate controlled in a way, right? So, you know, corporations that do things wrong aren't being held responsible like CEOs so at the same point neither are the leaders right right and I think the earliest um, relationships between corporate America and the intelligence world um, started occurring um, when uh, we went into well when the, the British asked us to um, to go in and depose the the uh, the the uh, religious leader in in Iran that was clearly corporate motivated Guatemala was clearly corporate motivated, you know, and so it's uh, that wedding happened then and continues to this day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a depressing thought. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so now, one thing about the title I noticed was you you called it Dorothy, and then you say an immoral and dangerous woman. Uh, that's quite a statement. Um, what made you put that in the title? Well, it's interesting. I, uh, yeah, you know, that, my publisher asked me, well, why do you want to say that about, about your mother? And I said, well, it's, I, t I took it from uh, a, a CIA file uh, declassified under the Freedom of Information Act. Now, I don't take any credit for being the one that, that had that declassified. But um, in a CIA memo, uh, Dorothy Wetzel, as was her maiden name, uh, was, uh, written about and investigated and written about in a memo and they described her uh, as a amoral and dangerous individual and I I said woman instead of individual right. and then it goes on to say who underhandedly attacked those persons who incurred her enmity uh, and so that this was a, uh, a description of her as as the CIA depicted her Right. And uh, I think it's a compliment. I mean, I, I put it out there because I think, damn right she was dangerous, you know. And um, in, the right, um, in, in, in the right instances, yeah, she could be amoral. She, she might not have a conscience about doing something. If you mess with her. Well, it's know. all relative to the situation, right? Yeah, it yeah. is. So, 
uh, I just found that to be very interesting. So what's your overall view of your mother, if you had to say it in a, in a couple of words or a short? Uh, uh, she, was, um, she was the embodiment of love. She, I felt so much love for her and still do. And uh, just, she was just a remarkable person ahead of her time. She should be viewed as a, as a role model for all women, uh, as an independent, fiercely strong, fiercely loyal um, uh, person. Um, very much uh, in charge of herself at a time when women, you know, had very few roles uh, in uh, in intelligence or in most other businesses. As a matter of fact, the late 40s and early 50s, um, she is is is, uh, is someone who was ahead of her time and should be noted as such, a, a role model for all women of. Uh, it, uh, you know, uh, feminine empowerment. Absolutely amazing. So, what's up next for you? Well, I just um, uh, I um, I co-wrote a book with Roger Stone, uh, which um, is available uh, online and will it be available in stores next week. It's called Jeb and the Bush Crime Family, and that's a, a co-written Roger Stone St. John Hunt book. And I'm working on a, a second book with Roger. On uh, the JFK Jr. Uh, story, his, his life and his death, and we, we've got some amazing things uh, involving uh, his death too that we've uncovered uh, that uh, that that we're going to put out. Well, I could imagine. Uh, and Roger Stone has um, been on before and writes writes quite good. <laughs> yeah. His stuff is—I mean—he just goes for the jugular, you know. I mean, he, it, it's the Clinton War on Women on Women book that he um, just published uh, six months ago or so. Um, I, I worked on that book, but uh, didn't get credit for, it, and that's fine because it was a test. Roger, you know, after after I helped with that book, he, um, you know, he asked me to do the the Bush book with him and to continue doing books. He likes my writing style a lot, and um, so. Uh, we're good friends. He lives in Fort Lauderdale, and I live in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, he he goes. He doesn't mess around. He goes with the jugular. He says what he feels, and he backs it up with uh, with verifiable uh, uh, footnotes. Well, again, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed myself. I think you're a wonderful uh, host and a good interviewer. And uh, you've let me uh, ramble on probably long enough. <laughs> more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs>